0: Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is the start of a new month, the beginning of a new season. We can now officially declare that we have been in the grip of a worldwide pandemic for three different seasons and the world hasn't got any more sensible i'm afraid yeah we've had spring uh, we've had summer and we're now getting into autumn um here's what's going on people seem to be getting their knickers in a twist about adele's new jamaican inspired hairstyle claiming that it culturally misappropriates the caribbean culture looking at how much she's changed i'd be more concerned that it's not even her doesn't look like Adele to me. I mean, I'm not suggesting for a minute that there should be some conspiracy theory out there that Adele has been replaced by somebody else or that Adele actually hasn't lost any weight at all. And she's just putting this woman out there pretending that she has. That would be mad, wouldn't it? That couldn't possibly be true. Footballer and millionaire Marcus Rashford also seems to think he can now solve food poverty in the United Kingdom after his success in the summer, forcing the government to continue to provide free school meals. As a side uh, dish, I'm afraid, uh, he's too injured to play football. That's where we are. Uh, teachers are still warning they might not be able to go back to school, despite assurances that there is hardly any risk whatsoever attached to doing so. Teachers don't want to teach. There we go with that one. And as if all that isn't bad enough, apparently the new BBC Director General, Tim Davey, wants to ban left-wing comedy. Well, here's the thing, Tim. The problem with the BBC is that it's got left-wing bias all over the place. The comedy doesn't really matter. The politics actually does. But of course, if you took all the left-wing bias out of the BBC, they wouldn't have anything left to broadcast, would they? 0344 499 1000. Don't forget Nick Robinson yesterday uh, we talked about because he, of course, is the presenter of Today programme on Radio 4, one of the best and most listened to shows that the BBC has ever produced. He actually encouraged people to send letters to Ofcom to object to the launching of a new television station which might actually do what the people want it to do, i.e. report the news, have a little bit of right-wing opinion, and actually be quite entertaining. All things that the BBC is not. Coming up this morning, we're kicking off with a new set of figures on illegal migrants seeking asylum from the Home Office. It turns out that the huge bulk of the 44,000-plus who have come into this country in the year-ending June 2020. Could be waiting for 14 years or more before they know whether their application has been successful and then after that they could have another 14 years to appeal surely this has to get more efficient and the new figures are published as it emerges that the true cost to the taxpayer of the whole asylum business is one billion pounds each and every year That's right. We're going to be talking to Alf Mehmet, uh, chairman of Migration Watch, this morning to get his take on it all. 03444991000. Parliament returns to work today and we'll bring you the latest from the first cabinet meeting of the new political season. Plus, we'll be finding out what the latest quarantine news is from our travel department. And there's even a little bit of Brexit news as well.
2: Mid-morning with Mike Ray. Talk Radio.
3: Now, we haven't done it this week yet, so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask for our very, very able and well-connected people uh, in the control room to get ready well, to play a little bit of Real Britannia. Because I'll tell you what, I've got somebody to thank for having a very, very nice little present that came in the post yesterday. Uh, it comes from uh, somebody by the name on Twitter of HRH um, King Carl. So King Carl, who sent me a load of these... Here's to you. <laughs> Well done, King Carl. It's put us all in a very good mood to kick things off. Let's talk, first of all, uh, this morning to Alp Mehmet, Chairman of Migration Watch, because I tell you what, uh, aside from the new figures that have been put out by the Home Office, which we got our hot little hands on yesterday, there's an incredible story doing the rounds this morning in which it basically says that the migration uh, story, the migrant uh, crisis as it as it is, costs us around about a billion pounds a year. This is more than anybody I think ever knew because we keep being told by the Home Office oh well, you know, there's a bit of a, a, a cost here, there's a bit of a cost to putting people on coaches, a bit of a cost uh, to giving Serco a load of money to put people up in hotels, a bit of a cost to housing loads and loads of migrants in various homes across the country. Uh, Alp, a very good morning to you. This is not looking good is it? <laughs>
2: Good morning Mike. Yeah. Uh, no, it's not it's not looking brilliant is it? Um it's not so much that this is what's costing us now but what worries me in particular is the scale of it mm. and the rate at which it's climbing. It's actually doubled in 5 years. So if it's going to continue doubling every 5 years we're talking about a huge amount of money that the British taxpayer is 40. Well, this is
3: right. I mean, I'm looking at the figures that I got my hands on yesterday, Alp, um, and looking back to December 2010, the number of people awaiting a decision on whether they could seek asylum in this country was 11,623. Um, In 10 years time, which is June 2020, the number waiting for a decision is 44,451. So effectively, you know, it's increased fourfold. And the thing that staggers me about these figures is that basically uh, the number of people waiting for an application could have been waiting since 2006. So the speed of which uh, these, uh, these things are handled is ludicrously slow. Yeah,
2: and this is not a new problem. This is what really bugs me, that there's been years and years in which we could have dealt with it, and Mm. we haven't. Part of the problem, of course, is the whole system itself and the framework of laws that we've got in place at the moment that allow all this to happen. I I know last week Priti Patel and others criticised lawyers for delaying the departure, the return of uh, uh, people who've been turned down for asylum or were being removed for one reason or another. Well, the fact is that they're only able to do it because of the law that we've got in place. You know, you can't They're doing very nicely out of it. Lawyers, I'm sure they're not complaining about uh, the odd bob that they're making. Mm. But the fact is that they're doing it in accordance with the law. And that is what needs to be changed. That is what we need to reform, root and branch. And the sooner we start doing that, the better.
3: Yes, exactly right. I mean, we've got a letter here which we got from uh, the group of common sense, the MPs in Parliament. Uh, there's around 42 of them, six peers as well, basically saying that the asylum system is unfit for purpose calling for a change in the law, calling for uh, a, a change in the, uh, the the agreement that was signed in Dublin, basically which allows uh, these people to come here illegally and then seek asylum, despite the fact that they're coming from other countries in Europe, which are safe. And I think if we can do that uh, and we can make it less uh, friendly for them when they get here in terms of them being given accommodation, being given money, um, I think they'll just stop coming, won't
2: they? Uh if we can send out the message that uh, certainly if you make it here by whatever means and then having made it here, you claim asylum and that automatically allows you to stay effectively indefinitely. Mm. If we can persuade people that that, that won't happen, yes, the the uh, traffickers will at that stage uh, cease to have anything to market their trade with. At the moment, all they have to say, look, we'll get you over there. And once you're there, you're there to stay and you'll have jobs, you'll be looked after, you'll have accommodation. Frankly, why wouldn't a lot of these people who are looking for a better life? They're not asylum seekers in the strictest sense of the word. They don't uh, merit, they don't uh, uh, qualify for asylum in the strictest sense of the word. But they get to stay anyway that's what we need to address we need to be pretty rigorous in how we apply the asylum laws and we need to change those laws themselves exactly right and what do you make of the reasons why Alp that we're
3: only now really starting to discuss this situation if it wasn't for Nigel Farage who's been on this show several times we wouldn't even know about what was going on really because nobody's reporting it
2: Well, you're absolutely right, and thank you for doing it, Mike. You're one of the few people who is prepared to draw attention to the issue, which, uh, frankly, the vast majority of people in this country, some 77% of people in this country, of the voting public, think that illegal immigration is a serious problem. Now, that should tell the government something. And it's all very well to come up with uh, little catchy phrases, points-paced system, Australian style, that is going to uh, solve the issue, solve the problem. It won't. It won't do anything of the sort, frankly. And the system that the government has in mind to introduce is more likely to increase migration numbers, which, as we saw last week, is now back up above 300,000 a year net, that's a huge number. And it's added to our population in a way that's bringing all sorts of pressures and not least is making integration more and more difficult. Yes. That's what we've got to think about. And what's what people want.
3: And also this ridiculous idea that putting a bunch of uh, people who have come here illegally, mostly young men, into sort of hotels and hostels up and down the country, which is creating more trouble uh, than, it's, than it's solving, quite frankly, you know, is, is obviously only a kind of temporary measure. But we're now seeing uh, all sorts of uh, backlashes going on. You know, we, we're also seeing uh, people complaining that there's people turning up in Dover uh, who may have, you know, uh, malice a forethought, trying to stop the immigrants by by themselves, because they may feel uh, that they are somehow um, in a position to do that. You know, and the government is entirely to blame for this because the government should have stopped it
2: when they could. The government should be stopping it. Uh, that should have stopped it. And what is more, let's not forget that the vast majority of the people that we're talking about enter the EU at some point, into yeah. France at some point. Why is it more being done, frankly, in order to address the issue at that stage? That's what's not happening. These people don't suddenly materialise out of thin air on the, the north coast, if we're talking about the Channel Crosses. They don't suddenly get to uh, the northern shores of, of the French uh, coast and then jump into a dinghy, they make their way there. A lot of them have spent a lot of time, a long time in France and other EU countries. Why isn't the issue being dealt with at that stage? That's what I'd like to ask the French. That's what I'd like to ask the EU. When we leave the EU definitively at the end of this year, that at least will give us the opportunity of do what is necessary with regard to this ridiculous Dublin treaty agreement that we've signed up to and frankly we lose out of mostly rather than getting
3: Yes, absolutely right. And isn't it interesting that we've now got a new parliament uh, starting today? Uh, the new season begins. We're told that there's an awful lot of legislation that's going to be worked upon. Uh, we're told also that the asylum crisis, uh, the migrant crisis, is going to be on that agenda. Um, what sort of faith and hope do you have, Alp, that something will be done before Christmas on this?
2: Well, uh, <laughs> I'm not sh- We need new legislation. That's definite you know there's no question the legislation that is necessary in order to replace uh, the arrangements that are in place at the moment once we leave the EU that's that's going to happen it's really the sort of a law most important at the moment I'm not confident that what is uh, being proposed is actually going to do what's necessary. And that's not only control immigration, but actually reduce it. And that's what the majority of people in this country want. But there are sensible people in, uh, in the Commons. Yes, there are. Um, this group that you referred to earlier, many of them in the sort of northern constituencies that voted Tory for the first time, yeah. frankly. And they they get it. They understand that this is a, a serious issue that needs to be addressed. I hope I hope that Sir John Hayes and the group that he's put together will will help, frankly. Uh, to put the necessary pressure on the government to do what is necessary.
3: Yes, and one of the things they're calling for, of course, is the uh, much more speedy deportation of individuals who fail in their quest to get asylum. Because the idea that you can claim asylum in 2006 and you could still be here right now in this day and age today waiting for a decision is extraordinary. 14 years. I mean, what is going on? Why can it possibly take that length of time
2: for a decision to be made? It's absurd. And frankly, once they get to 14 years, there's no question of returning them anyway. (laughs) And even criminals who've served their time, when they come out, if they would otherwise be destitute, they are then provided with accommodation. Mm. And that is in accordance with uh, legislation that was passed by Tony Blair administration in 1999. The 1999 uh, Immigration and Asylum Act actually makes it a re- the responsibility of the government, local authorities, to provide accommodation for criminals uh, who would otherwise be destitute. That's, that's absurd. It's not new, frankly. There was a time in the Uh, early 2000s, when we had half a million people waiting uh, for their cases to be uh, heard. What effectively happened was that we had uh, uh, an amnesty because in order to get rid of the the queue, uh, people were just given permission to stay without really considering their cases Mm. uh, to any extent. Let's hope that that doesn't happen. What we need to do is sort this out by dealing with asylum quickly, for the whole judicial process to work quickly, and then those who don't qualify, who are refused asylum, to be returned as quickly as possible. Otherwise, we end up in the position of people waiting 14 years and then being given leave to stay indefinitely anyway.
3: Yeah, it's an absolutely ridiculous situation. Alp, listen, thanks very much indeed. Uh, A few difficulties there with the communications, but thank you very much for persevering. Alp Mehmet, uh, Mehmet, Chairman of Migration Watch, like me, uh, is incredulous at the figures that have come out of the Home Office this week in which it is revealed that it can take as long as 14 years and possibly longer to actually even get an answer out of the Home Office as to what it is that you can actually do about getting asylum in this country. We've got a massive problem. It's costing a billion pounds a year to the taxpayer. It needs to be sorted out, and it needs to be sorted out right now. We need need to hear from you on this one, 0344 499 1000. Don't forget, uh, I'm still asking everyone, each and every one of you out there, to write to your MP, ask them the same question uh, that we have been asking, because I think this will continue to keep up the pressure, not only uh, on your own MPs, but also on the government themselves, because if MPs are getting bombarded with questions... They need answers from the prime minister's office and from the home office. So here's what you do. You write to your MP. uh, You tell them that you want to know whether or not there are any illegal migrants being housed in hotels in your constituency. It's a perfectly reasonable question. There's no menace, menace about it. There's no malice about it. You're just asking for information. And how they answer... Uh, is a very good indicator of how good your MP is. And I want you to do that if you haven't done it already.
4: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right
3: now, though, let's talk to Lee Rowley, uh, who's Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party, MP for North East Derbyshire. The first sort of cabinet meeting proper got underway today as the, uh, as the MPs all prepare to come back to Parliament later on this afternoon. We've got the first Prime Minister's questions coming up tomorrow, which will bring you live on this very show, of course, in the company of Charlotte Ivers. Uh, let's say a very good morning uh, to Mr Rowley. Lee, a very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. It's been an interesting uh, summer, I suppose you might say. I said we've now moved into the third season of the pandemic. Uh, nobody's quite sure where it's all going to go or what we're going to do next. But uh, how was the mood this morning and, and what can you tell us uh, that was discussed?
4: Yes, yeah, so I think people are getting ready to get back into Parliament. Obviously, the Cabinet has uh, is just happening. It's just broken up. Um, that is bringing everybody back together after the summer. They've been talking throughout the summer. Uh, separately, And then all of us in the back bench are getting ready to go back into Westminster today. Some people are there and we're keen to get going. We know that there are a huge number of challenges still around coronavirus, the kind of preparation you were talking about, but also everything else that we want to get moving on, the manifesto commitments and the like. So we're keen to see the autumn term begin.
3: Yes, absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that I'm looking forward to is the first Prime Minister's Questions back again because you know Boris Johnson has been sort of in 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 bits great during during the lockdown and in other parts seemingly slightly um, you know shall we say rudderless we would we we would say um, he needs to kind of get to grips with it back uh, in Parliament I think and and all Prime Minister's Questions is always a good opportunity for that.
4: Yeah, the Prime Minister is great when he is out there making the case for what we're trying to do and I think he excels at the dispatch box and obviously there is this new contrast between him and Keir Starmer, Keir uh, coming back uh, sometimes on the side of um, of hindsight in many people's views but yep. ultimately um, that's well the right I mean he play. is
3: he is known as Captain Hindsight let's not beat about the bush <laughs> You know. indeed
4: and and I think the Prime Minister will relish the opportunity to have that debate and it's good for politics as a whole to get back to have that debate that discussion and the, like I wish it was that more of us could be in the chamber like previously but for now we can't yes. do that but I'm Parliament's getting back yeah I
3: mean is there any likelihood that that changes in the in the, in this term as it were between now and Christmas?
4: Well, I, I mean, I personally would hope so, but we're, we're working on the basis of what the public health guidance is saying, just like so many of the workplaces around the country. I think the speaker is looking at it on a regular basis, um, you know, every few weeks or so. So we'll see how it goes. But, you know, just like everywhere else, we've had to change. Hopefully it will be temporary and keen to get back to normal as soon as possible right and what
3: about the backbenchers? some of them have been uh, making noises either uh, officially or unofficially to um, the cabinet to Downing Street that they want to see um, a few uh, uh, less uh, less u-turns if you like and and less kind of changing of policy and a bit more leadership is that something that that Downing Street is is concerned about or uh, is that being sorted out
4: well, I know that Downing Street and the Whips are constantly in contact with my colleagues. I was like, speaking to my Whip a few days ago about um, coming back this week and all the things we're doing, fisheries bill and and the like. Um, so, so I think those conversations are happening. It's always easier to have those conversations when you're in one place. It's one of the reasons why we're keen to for in all workplaces for people to go back into the workplace where they can, because it's easier to have those discussions. There's obviously been challenges over recent months, but you would expect that within a pandemic. And I think the word that I have from when I was out delivering my leaflets and speaking to people, washing their cars and cutting their hedges in North East Arbyshire last week and over the last few weeks is, you know, keep going. We know it's difficult. We know there are no perfect answers, but keep doing what you're doing. But just make sure you've got the end point and the end goal in mind and we'll get there.
3: I mean, a lot of people have been saying to me over the past few weeks that there are two particularly big issues that they expect Boris Johnson uh, to do something about. One is law and order, obviously. Uh, We've seen an awful lot of, um, you know, shall we say, breaking of the law, breaching of the law uh, in lockdown. Some of these illegal raves that have been going on that seem to be now being dealt with a bit better. A lot of marching going on. A lot of violence, um, which seems to have died down thankfully for the moment. But also the other big one is is illegal immigration. Um, I get questioned every single day practically by my listeners who want to know what Priti Patel is going to do uh, we've, got, we've now got a, a group called the Common Sense Group uh, which has uh, written a letter I believe to, to Boris uh, it's been signed by Sir John Hayes and about 42 other MPs who want to see a change in the law because you know this seems to be going on uh, almost without anybody's knowledge
4: yeah, I think on the first one, as you say, there is um, th- there has been a lot of focus on trying to make sure that some of the people who are doing silly things over coronavirus stop doing that. There have been greater fines. There's been more breaking up of, of raves and things like that. We wish it wasn't wouldn't be necessary. You know, most people, vast vast majority of people are following the rules and the guidance. And it's only a small minority that are causing issues. issue. So hopefully people are seeing Uh, Movement on that. On immigration, uh, many of us in the, you know, our party is absolutely committed to controlled immigration. It's the thing that we stood on in the manifesto. And obviously, there is this problem at the moment of people trying to jump the queue by getting to northern France and then trying to come over really dangerous journeys. And that needs to stop, not just for because it needs to stop for the United Kingdom, it's not appropriate, but also for their sakes as well. And I know. The Home Secretary is looking at what can be done here, changing the law. She's been over to France. We are working more closely with the French authorities. We need the French authorities to step up even more on this. You know, these things do take time, but there's a huge amount of focus going into it because you know, it's just not appropriate at least, that this kind of thing happens.
3: The other big story, I suppose, uh, that we've been covering the last few weeks is the return to work and the return to kind of cities, if you like, by an awful lot of uh, workers who, who seem to rather enjoy working from home. Rishi Sunak the other day was kind of floating the idea of putting up taxes, which, which most people that I've spoken to are not particularly keen on seeing. Um, what can the government do better to get more people back? And should, it, should Boris not be in, employing and imploring the civil service to come back, first of all?
4: so we do need people back in work where it's safe to do so and and, uh, so long as it is safe we are encouraging people to do that there's obviously going to be a there's many different workplaces out there as there are people and employers but where you can make it safe they should do that the fact it is the case that the majority of people have been going to work throughout the pandemic throughout particularly in places like my own in northeast Derbyshire, but in places like london and birmingham and manchester we are keen for people to go back and the civil service is coming back right you know at the beginning of the the beginning of the summer I was speaking with ministers and some of those buildings were looking a bit empty. I can see that they're looking a little bit fuller now. So yeah. it is starting to come back
3: up Yeah, because I think that there are those out there who think that we, we will change the way we live and work forever now because this has been something that was supposed to be coming. But I don't see it that way. I think it's quite a dangerous way of thinking that, you know, of course you would like to stay working from home because it's easier and you don't have to commute anywhere. You can spend more time with your family. But it's not just about what people want individually, is it?
4: I mean, I think there will be some changes and inevitably there are going to be some changes out of that. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But ultimately, if the vast majority of people are going to go back into the workplace, which I think is the case because workplace has huge amounts of benefits. You're all in one place. You can do more collaborative working, talk to people easier. There's a reason why we've, you know, why work is based around a single location in many instances. If that's going to happen and if it's safe to do so now, we want people back because we don't want unintended casualties. Other businesses who can't function or have to let people go or maybe even don't get through this simply because people aren't getting back into the workplace even when they're able to do that. So that's what I think people just need to think about on a wider scale. But there will be changes, there's no doubt about that. But it's it's making sure that if they're going to go back and if it's safe to do so, they should start
3: doing that. And hopefully the schools going back will, will lead to a bit more people uh, having the opportunity to return to their offices as well. Um, what I'm hoping isn't going to happen uh, is that there's going to be sort of more panic setting in, for example, if there's a couple of outbreaks in schools. I've I've been saying recently, you know, isn't it more sensible and more grown up to kind of accept that this virus is going to be around for a while and not to panic every time something happens and lock everything down again?
4: Yeah, we've got to have a a, a mature conversation about this, as you were indicating. I I do a weekly conversation with my uh, residents in northeast Arbyshire and we go through the statistics for northeast Arbyshire and uh, there was a point a couple of weeks ago where you know our numbers went slight, slightly higher than the English average but we talked through how that, you know, it didn't necessarily mean that that was a concern, mm. that we had to monitor it, we had to be careful. But I think people want the honest and open view about this and we're going to have challenges over the coming months and we should be clear about that. But it isn't the f- we should try and avoid them, but if we've got them, there are processes in place to get on top of them. And so we should be aware of what's happening, but also making sure we're just careful in the way we work out of our daily lives. Common sense will prevail here. And as long as we do, as long as we apply common sense, in the vast majority of cases, we're going to get through this and we're going to get through this well.
3: Well, you'll get a lot of agreement from me on the words common sense, because that's the home. We are the home of common sense, Lee, as you may or may not know. But listen, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Enjoy your return to work uh, later on today. Uh, I'm sure you'll say I've been working all the way through. Don't be ridiculous. But uh, we should look forward to Prime Minister's questions tomorrow. Lee Rowley there, uh, who's Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party and, of course, MP uh, for North East Derbyshire. Uh, Business is back in Parliament. So let's get business back
1: in the rest of the country as well. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk. Radio.
3: The
2: Independent Republic of
3: Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've got much more to do. We're going to speak to Professor Sir Carrie Cooper very shortly because we were talking there uh, with our last guest, Lee Rowley, about working from home. Uh, he, like me, believes that we should be getting back uh, into more office related duties. And I know there are still loads of you out there who disagree with me. Loads of you out there who think that, you know, I should not be dictating to you where you work from. And I'm not by any saying that everybody uh, should work from an office because obviously we know that's not true. I mean, Simon Calder, for example, whenever we talk to Simon, he's always somewhere else. He's always out and about. Uh, He sometimes is in... uh, He was in a prep today. Uh, Sometimes he's in Venice. Sometimes he's wandering around um, the hills of the Peak District. Sometimes um, he's in... um, Uh, Italy and another part of uh, I think he was in Umbria once and he was in Tuscany another time you know he travels around an awful lot he probably does not work from an office more than about you know four to five days out of the year but that doesn't mean uh, he shouldn't have a base and it doesn't mean that he should sit in his what I'm really talking about the people who because of this pandemic are now sitting around at home and doing absolutely nothing around going out now it doesn't mean, you know, we've had a we've had a, a sort of a study come out today which George Pascoe Watson mentioned to us that in fact people are more hard working when they're at home. Well, how do we know that? The only reason we say that is because people say, if you ask them, are you working longer hours now that you're working from home? And they go, Yeah, of course I am. Yeah, right. Well, you would say that, wouldn't you? There's a new book that's come out though, which has actually said that working from home could actually turn you into a rather grumpy a rather isolated misanthrope. Let's talk to Sir Carrie Cooper and find out whether he agrees. Sir Carrie, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning to you, Mike. Now, listen, um, it's a bit of a bugbear for me, this particular story, because, you know, while I accept that some people can do their work from home and it might suit them down to the ground and it might be better for them, better for their family life, better for their work-life balance, there's also what I regard as an overarching responsibility uh, to the over to the wider sort of economy and to the wider community uh, that we that we owe each other um, the necessity of working in a city together. Look
1: at Mike. What we all want is we want the UK to be productive. We want to get we want to get this recession over with. We all agree to that. Now about working pre COVID, there was a lot of evidence, Mike, that people who chose to and who could chose to and who could work from home substantially, but not exclusively. Very few wanted to exclusively work from home. Yeah. All right. Right. Where they did, and I did an academic book where I got academics from all over the world in different countries, Australia, the U S Canada. We looked at all the evidence. The evidence was if you could, and you wanted to, it was more productive, more productive. That's very important. When you consider the UK, is tied sixth with italy in the g7 at the bottom mm. on productivity per capita and we're 17th in the g20 then then it makes us more productive less sickness absence days and more job satisfied yeah. however and here's the big however the however is people should not be forced to work exclusively from home by the way people don't want exclusively work from home we didn't want lockdown we didn't mm. want 100% from home what people wanted, who wanted to work more flexibly, wanted to work substantially from home, but wanted to go into a central office for meetings, to do things, to, you know, etc. So I think that the bottom line is it's not an either or. It's not we should all go into a central office or we should all stay at home mm. if you can. Obviously, there are workers like train drivers and nurses and doctors. Yeah. who A lot of people have to go to the coalface. Uh, you know, and you work on a, a a paste assembly line or a construction site. Yeah. So my own view is this. We want to be more productive as an economy. I want to see it. Right. And I want to the way we're going to do that is by giving people more autonomy and control. If they can want to. We have the technology. They can work substantially. They won't work exclusively. Believe me, they won't. They'll want to come in to talk about Manchester City Football Club. where yeah. They buy but this is what, I, this is what
3: I worry about, though, um, because in the end, yes, of course, people will say, oh, I've got a bit of work life balance. I don't have to waste two hours a day commuting. You know, it's horrible. I don't have to go into town and spend my money there because I don't want to. You know, that is counterintuitive to what I call society. Society yeah, is about no, is about mingling with people. It's about talking to other people, yes. and I think there's a danger that people who work from home will become so isolated that they actually forget how to socialize. Yeah, but
1: you know, Mike, the point is. The vast majority of people who want to work more from home do mm. not want to work exclusively from home. That's what the evidence shows. Yeah. They do not. Yeah, they, they want, want to do. yeah, soul, but, but that's, but You know what? Be,
3: I mean, what? Uh, this is why they don't put me in charge of anything anymore. Because if I had a worker, an employee, who said, yeah, you know, I don't fancy coming in more than about one day a week, so that's what I'm going to do. I would be like, well, really? Is that what you want to do? Well, maybe you should become a self-employed person then and run your own business. Because if you're working for me, I want you here every day. Yeah,
1: but I don't think they're going to want to come in for just one day. You know what? The important thing is this. You say to a human being, given the technology, given your own circumstance about child care, elder care, a whole range of things, what would you like to do and what would fit in with the team, right? Just be logical. Yeah. Fine. And if somebody says, you know what, Carrie, what I'd like to do is I'd like to come in from time to time where we have meetings and this and that. I might be coming two or three days a week. But I'd like to work, uh, you know, uh, more from home because it's less of a commute, less congestion, less getting the the virus. Da 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 da. Yeah. And if you do that, you'll be more productive. You, we're not. We were. We had the longest working pre-COVID. We had the longest working hours in Europe. And our productivity was one of the worst.
3: Yeah. But how is it also that we now have have, to improve that? But we now have a a, a new statistic, which is that we are the worst at going back to the office. Every other country in Europe has got, you know, much higher occupancy rates of office work now. Uh, We're still in London. I saw a figure the other day. Only 13 percent of people have come back
1: into offices. Yeah, but you know what we ought to find out? I mean, uh, I think you're going to find gradually they will return to the office. And you know why they will in larger numbers? Because of job insecurity. Mark. Well, well, this in is it. In other words, but this is job it. insecurity will drive people right. to come back because there's a concept called presenteeism. People want to show face time when they're feeling job insecure. Right. So believe me, the, the the motivator will not be, I'd rather work from home, save money on transport, not get potentially get the virus by commuting in where people are ignoring the face masks and the rest of it. Yeah. Okay. I think we'll get them back in the office. You watch. My prediction is over September, large numbers of people will return, not necessarily because they want to, but because they're worried about their jobs and need to be in the political arena of the office. Well,
3: I hope you're right, because I need to see that, and I think the country needs to see it, not just in London, but in all other cities as well, because I think it's a shibboleth to say, oh, well, don't worry, all of the money that they would normally spend in the city, they're spending locally. That is simply not true. I just don't believe it for a second. But I'll tell you the other problem I have with kind of giving workers their own rights to the ridiculous extent that they can do whatever they want. I once had a job uh, in Scotland where I was editing a newspaper and the secretary uh, of the the editor's office went off to have a baby which is fine she was on maternity leave for a while she came back she said i don't really want to work a whole week i want to work half a week so we had to get somebody else to come in and do the other half of the week right so they would literally do uh, one would do monday tuesday wednesday morning the other one would come in wednesday afternoon do thursday friday it was a disaster because every time i had a conversation with either one of them They didn't know the other one had done something. So I would say, and I couldn't remember which one it was that I'd done whatever it was with, and I'd sent a letter out that one of them had written, and it was completely hopeless. But it was done because we were supposed to be trying to help out uh, somebody who wanted to really work half,
1: half the week, and it was a disaster. Yeah, but remember, Mike, that's about management. You know, if I say to you I would like to work more flexibly, yeah. you're my manager, you say to me, now how's that going to fit in with the team? How's it going to fit in with me? How's it going to fit in with Janet? That's what a manager yeah. does. But Another I wasn't problem, no, I
3: wasn't really her manager, I was her boss, right? We had an HR yeah. department who didn't give me any choice. They said you got to do this because she's asking yeah. for it and well, we don't have not, any, we don't have any right to say no.
1: No, but that's not good that's not good HR practice. Good HR practice. Well, very little
3: HR practice is good HR practice, I
1: have my experience. Anyway, I think what you need to do is you need to come to some agreement and saying, here's what I'd like to do, but what I'm going to do, I can do that given the nature of the job I have. And here's how I'm going to make sure that I'm uh, au fait with the yeah. team, that I'm, right. my boss and I get on. You know, you, you can do it, but that requires another issue we'll talk about some other time. Do we have enough line managers, bosses right. who have good social skills to do
3: that? My point, though, is, uh, Sakari that you can't give the, the, the farm away to the people who work on the farm. You've got to still run it as a business. And running it yeah. as a business involves yeah. people having to do what you tell them to do. And I know that, yeah. you know, we don't live in that world now. We live in the woke world where everybody has their rights and everybody can do what they want. Well, I'm sorry, that's not the way to run a
1: business. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I could things... say to
3: talk radio, do you know what? I don't fancy doing the uh, mid-morning show today. I think I'll come in and do the drive-time show because I quite like a lie-in.
1: Anyway, that but we... Yeah, but 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 Mike, what we all want is this economy to be very productive. Pre-COVID, we weren't.
3: Yes. There well, was you pro- say that, but we were a lot we more productive than we are that. now.
1: Yeah, and so what we have to do is acknowledge that. I want to keep people employed. I want to have sandwich bars. I want to have... Coffee shops in London. Well, you know what? The people
3: who are working from home don't care about that because they tell
1: me that. Well, anyway, I think we're going to get there. And the way we're going to get there is by good management, which figures out what what's a good solution for an individual, gives people some autonomy and control over their job. Mm. And and we will we will get there. And believe me people will not work exclusively from home. They yeah. don't want to do that.
3: OK, well, we'll see. I hope you're right. Professor Sir Carrie Cooper there, psychologist, professor of organisational psychology uh, and health at the Manchester Business School. Beware, is what I would say, uh, of those people who tell you, first of all, that they're b- working a lot harder because they're working from home. I don't believe a word of it. And two, also beware people uh, who are so selfish and so self-centred that they don't see the big picture. They don't see the broader brushstrokes. They don't see that the more that they stay away from work, the more it will damage their own personal situation and it could damage their work situation as well. It's as simple as that mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Now, it is just after 12.30, and as you know, uh, for the past several weeks and months, we've been doing homeschooling, uh, which has provided a very useful little interlude for many parents who have been trying to get their kids to do something vaguely kind of, you know, um, academic during the time that they've been off school. They're all starting to go back to school now. Obviously, in uh, in northern ireland and scotland they're already back uh, many kids are going back this week most are going back next week as well uh, let's talk now though uh, for our homeschooling segment today to tom whipple science editor at the times very clever man author of two books get ahead in chemistry and get ahead in physics we're going to talk to him today about electromagnetism uh, which some of you may know about some of you may not tom a very good afternoon to you welcome Good afternoon. Hello. How are you doing? And how uh, did you come about being such an expert in physics and chemistry? Because I always quite liked physics, but I hated chemistry.
0: I was exactly the same. Uh, Physics made sense. Chemistry was very complicated. Um, But I have been forced in my career to come to an appreciation of both of them. It was physics that I studied. Listen, you're a very
3: (laughs) unusual journalist in that case, Tom, because most journalists just pretend to be experts in things. If you actually are one, that's quite rare.
0: Well, I... I think, I think it was probably an unusual route into journalism. I discovered that I was quite a bit better at writing than I was at differential equations, but it took until i done a lot of differential equations yes. to realise that.
3: So we've chosen electromagnetism today, um, which is one of those things that I kind of vaguely remember doing experiments with, but it's quite a fascinating uh, idea because rather than having your old-fashioned magnet that just attracts things, um, you can actually make something attract things by firing electrons through it, right?
0: Yeah, it's sort of like that. It's—I um, mean, first of all, to understand it, you need to understand magnets, mm. um, and you call them old-fashioned magnets. But if we stop to think about it, magnetism is completely insane. Yeah, um, it's, you know, the idea that you've got something that can attract or repel this this lump of metal right. is just. Astonishing. And from the Greeks to Einstein, you know, scientists have sort of said, this is the most incredible thing. We we have them on our fridge and we just think they're completely normal. But right. They're not. Well, that's true um, as, as
3: well, because I know a lot of people still struggle with the concept of north and magnetic north. Uh, and I'm I'm actually one of them, because you're kind of going, Well, how are there two different norths and how does that work?
0: Well, north North is just, uh, you know, the, the point of the globe that's furthest from the equator. Yeah. Um, whereas Magnetic North is inside, well, inside our planet, there is an electromagnet. So there's a big lump of iron in the centre of it, and around it, there's swirling molten metal, and the swirling molten metal is quite a lot like electricity flowing, it's Mm. movement of electrons, and that's making the iron magnet in the middle into a really powerful magnet, and that's what the compass is pointing to and it just happens that it's slightly aligned with north on the pole but it needn't be and so yeah it's it's slightly off center so the magnetic north is different from the north pole
3: right and so i mean i said old-fashioned magnets i suppose because i was referring to um the magnets that we would get in school that you would just pick up and you could play around with iron filings which is one of my favorite things to do Um, whereas an electromagnet i suppose feels as though it's a bit more modern because you're turning
0: something into a magnet that wasn't a magnet yeah it's exactly that so so very briefly uh, extremely briefly this is how it works so all matter in the world it has an extremely strong force attached to it mm. called the electrical force um, and it's you know, a billion 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 times stronger than gravity but we have two sorts of matter we have matter that uh, is negative and matter that is positive, and they all cancel each other out most of the time. Right. What a magnet is, and what an electromagnet is, is it's found a way to use its force uh, so that they're not canceling each other out. So in a magnet, you've got all of these electrons, which are the negatively charged particles, which are sort of aligned with each other. And that's how they manage to join their forces together and attract and repel things. Mm. And of course, in electricity, what you've got is electrons flowing, so you've got these negatively charged particles that are going around a wire and they're acting in synchrony as well and they make a little mag- magnetic field and, in fact, sailors have long noticed that if, they're in, if, if lightning strikes, their, uh, their compasses wobble because they're pulled towards the lightning's mm. electric field or magnetic field. Um, but if you then have this wire going around a bit of iron that wasn't previously acting as a magnet, Well, it gets all of the electrons in the iron in synchrony as well. And suddenly you have a really powerful magnet that's doing uh, far more powerful things. And that's great because you can switch things on and off. You can have those magnets that open and close doors and make them really, really strong shuts until you push a button. Um, But this is also what we use. To generate electricity and to make motors work, which right. is just electricity generation in reverse.
3: Right. So, I mean, you couldn't really do without magnets, could you? You need magnets in all sorts of different things that that we operate. Um, and there's no real I substitute. I mean, this is
0: the modern world, yeah. The, the modern world is powered by magnets and by electromagnets. Right.
3: There's a fascinating piece in your book about dogs. Tell us about that, if you can, without
0: making people uh, lose <laughs> <This> their lunch. <laughs> This is one of the most weird but brilliant scientific discoveries. So we know that lots of animals are very good at navigation in mm. a way that humans aren't. Right. Um, particularly so wolves from which dogs are descended seem to be able to get around quite well. Yeah. And we've often suggested that maybe they have some kind of internal compass. And some some scientists decided to record the directions. Dogs are facing right. when they defecate. Right. And the, they are far more likely to be aligned in a north-south direction than you'd expect. And they suggested that the dogs are, in a sense, sort of multitasking. They're right. checking their map whilst they do a poo. And... Uh, and and aligning themselves with the magnetic field of the Earth. And it's extremely strange, but it looks like them, as well as lots of other animals, can have a sort of extra sense where they can sense the magnetic field and use it for getting around.
3: Right. Now, can you also explain diamagnetism?
0: Because that looks pretty interesting, too. This is, so, uh, André Geim, um, who is uh, a Nobel Prize winning physicist, he was the discoverer of graphene. Um, he also got the Ig Nobel, which is this sort of alternative Nobel for things that are funny, but right. also a proper sign. Right. Because he made frogs levitate. And basically, within us, we all have atoms that all have electrons that are whizzing around. And there are, so there are these charged particles. And if you have a powerful enough magnetic field, then you can sort of re- create an antimagnet in basically anything. And he created it in a frog. So he he levitated a frog in a really, really strong magnetic field to show how this this diamagnetism works, Um, because fundamentally everything is made up of these charged particles, protons and the electrons, Um, and we we all... you can access them uh, if, if you know how. And that's what he was doing.
3: Amazing. Uh, I'm sure the frog was some, somewhat taken about. Is that how those uh, those sort of trains work as well? You know, there's hovering trains that go very fast. Oh, is there Magnets,
0: a mag- magnets are, they are conventional electromagnets and magnets um, that are just opposing each other. And it means that it's a bit like a hovercraft Mm. in that it's floating on air. So there's a lot less friction. But rather than a cushion of air, it's just repelled by the magnets.
3: Fascinating. I wonder what they could come up with um, that we're not doing with magnets. I mean, I can't I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I presume there are people in physics labs all over the world trying to think of new ways of using magnets.
0: Yeah, and we, I mean, the the, the cutting-edge magnets, the biggest magnets, the most powerful electromagnets in the world, are now used in places like CERN and other particle accelerators. Right. And what they do is accelerate charged particles to close to the speed of light over very long distances, and they are really big magnets. Yeah, So, yeah, magnets are... are lots of ways. Well,
1: Tom,
3: as ever, fascinating conversation. Uh, We've all learned something I'm sure today, uh, even if it's just about levitating frogs. Uh, Tom Whipple, science editor at the Times, thank you very much indeed. That's your homeschooling for today. Uh, If you didn't learn something there, there is something definitely wrong with you and you need to go get yourself checked out. Talk Radio
2: across the UK, online on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.